I've given it a title this morning. I know it's a passage about the resurrection, but I've given it a title, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. That's where we begin with the title, and that's where we're going to end. It's three days after the death of Jesus. And Luke introduces us to these two characters who are on their way to Emmaus. They're going back home. Actually, we soon discover that they, are part, they have been part of the group of people around the disciples. In fact, one of these characters is named by Luke. His name is Cleopas. And although I can't give you any biblical authority for this, I can tell you that early church tradition identified him as the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now, if that's true, he was Jesus' uncle. Of course, I can't give you any verification, either of proof or denial, but I like it because they've just been to the Passover feast and it's a family meal, isn't it? The family gets together. And we do know there were other members of the disciples' families there too, because one of the women that went out to the, to the tomb early in the morning was, was, um, was Mary, the mother of James. And James is reckoned to be James the Less, who was James the son of Alphaeus, one of the 12 disciples. There was family gathered together at this Passover meal. They'd all been there together. Now that as Luke portrays this, I suspect in the language he uses, there's a bit more excitement in places than actually comes out in our rather bland English translation. And at one or two points too, I'm just going to speculate but I'll tell you I'm doing it. <laughs> so, we're on the road with these two characters, one of them Cleopas, perhaps the uncle of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not a happy couple. In fact, they are probably fuming. We're told that they were discussing together on the journey, but um, the words which which Luke uses, suggests that they were conversing and disputing, perhaps arguing together. And when Jesus came up to them and asked them about the conversation he was having, it could be translated, what are these words you're throwing against one another? They could well have been having a, a big argument, a discussion. How did it all happen? What's it all about? How could we have believed it? How could we have been so stupid? Because the thing is that they had seen Jesus Christ crucified. And as they told Jesus subsequently, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. They had put all their hopes in Jesus. And then the chief priests and the rulers of the people had come along and they had uh, arrested him and had him condemned to death and crucified and put inside this grave. And with his death, crushing death of all their religious and spiritual Jewish hopes of their Messiah, crushed like that. And my guess is 
that on reflection they were feeling pretty angry with themselves that they could have been so taken in by it as well. They were not a happy couple as they walked home. What's more, that morning, as you read in the reading, some of the women had been out to the grave. They're named earlier in the chapter. There's Mary Magdalene, there's Salome, there's Mary, the mother of James, and others. So perhaps as many as two or three others had gone up there and the grave was empty and they came back with this cock and bull story about seeing some angels who said that Jesus was alive. Now, it wasn't a cock and bull story, but I suspect these people thought it was because the last thing they'd done was believe it. They hadn't hung on there with the rest to say, what, he's alive? They hadn't remembered any of the things that he'd said or that the scriptures had told them. What, these women have come back, what are they? Demented or something? No, they didn't stay to find out. They were on their way home, mourning the fact that all their hopes were dead with the death of Jesus. Some of the disciples had gone out afterwards and they'd found it just as the women said, but him they didn't see. And this couple make a point of saying this to the stranger who's speaking to them, but him they didn't see. No, it's over. And we are desolated. Now then, they're telling the stranger, whom we know to be Jesus, they're telling the stranger these things because he asked them, what are you discussing as you travel? And I love the way that Luke uses a phrase which you wouldn't really expect to find unless it was absolutely what happened. He asked them the question and they stopped still. Sad. And then we get their answer to him, which might have been bitter. I suspect it might have had some sarcasm in it even. What, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened these days? Why, the whole town's buzzing with it. Everybody's talking about it. How they took Jesus, the one that we believe. He was a man mighty in word and deed before God and before men. And they took him and they had him crucified. And so we come to this expectation they had of him again. And we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. How come you don't know anything about this? Now Jesus' response to them, reading in English to me has always seemed a strange one. Oh foolish, the old-fashioned version said, oh foolish men, so we had two men in our meeting here. But I think it's just oh foolish ones. And I suspect it was a man and a woman couple. But pays your money, takes your choice. <laughs> oh foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now this, I can't imagine him being angry with them. Oh you foolish ones. I can imagine him being frustrated with, oh, you foolish ones. But what, why this word foolish? It actually means un 
mindful. We live in an unmindful generation. Publish something on social media and you don't have to check it out or fact check it or anything. If enough people say, you'll believe it because we're an unmindful generation. And these people have been unmindful. Since, since they were children, they've been going to the synagogue every Sabbath. They've listened to the reading of the law and the prophet. They've even been in the company that has followed Jesus, we assume, and they've heard Jesus and the things that Jesus has said and his teaching, and they called him a prophet when they said, haven't you heard what happened to the prophet? But they hadn't taken notice of what he said either. They were unmindful of it. They'd heard the words, but they hadn't thought about the significance. So when he died, that was it. We're told that beginning with Moses, and all the prophets. Jesus interpreted to them the things about himself from all the scriptures. Now there's something about this couple we need to recognize. They didn't recognize Jesus, but they didn't recognize Jesus for quite a specific reason. The scripture is quite clear when it says, they were kept from recognizing him. In fact, the language which the writer uses is they were held back that they should not recognize him. So their eyes did not recognize him because they could not, they didn't recognize him, they were held back. Now then, I want you to notice as you read the scripture that as he opened the scriptures to them, something happened in their hearts because they were foolish and slow of heart to believe. But as he spoke to them, we discovered later, these slow hearts began to warm up and to burn as he opened to them the scriptures. Because was it not necessary that he should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Wasn't it necessary? They're mourning that it happened, but wasn't it necessary? What do the scriptures say? And haven't they just been at the Passover feast? And didn't Moses introduce them to the Passover? And wasn't the Passover when they had been delivered from the Egyptian, the Egyptian slavery, but it had happened through sacrifice, hadn't it? They'd had to kill a paschal lamb. They painted the blood on the doorpost, the lintel, and the angel of death passed over. They were ransomed by blood. And then when Moses gave them their, their, their religious system, didn't he give them a sacrificial system? And didn't... Wasn't it written in, in Leviticus... The life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it's blood that makes atonement through the life. 
As the writer to the Hebrews later paraphrased it, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Hadn't the whole system which Moses had given them shown them that their their redemption needed sacrifice? And if he was to be the saviour of the world, wouldn't it need sacrifice? And didn't they remember the prophets? Here's an example. Isaiah 53, you know it better than they did at the time. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement which gave us peace. With his stripes we are healed. And Zechariah, here's just one other example of Zechariah in chapter 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord. Wasn't it written thus? The redemption of Israel, didn't it come through suffering? Why? If they'd just taken any notice of Jesus' own ministry, would they have heard John the Baptist announcing him to the world, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is the Lamb? The creature who is slain. And didn't Jesus tell them several times, three times, three chapters running in Mark's Gospel, The Son of Man will be taken and he will be crucified and the third day he will rise again. But they were unmindful of all these things. They saw the great works, they had the great hope, they had their false expectations of the Messiah and they were unmindful of all these things. Why, even the high priest got it better than they did. Because after Jesus had been been buried, He sent a message to Pilate saying, please put guards at this tomb because that imposter said that he would rise again from the dead and we're asking you to put a guard on the tomb lest the second second thing is more preposterous than the first. The high priest understood better than they did and they were blinded with their grief but they were kept from recognising him. But as he spoke to them, their hearts were beginning to burn. And this glow in their hearts as they approached Emmaus, and it was now getting late, this glow warned them to say, look, come and stay with us. It's night time, please, come and stay with us. The hearts are going to get warmer and warmer. Come and stay with us. And he did. But when they sat at table, he did something which the guests never did. He did something which the host always does. He took the bread and he broke it and he blessed it. And guess what? Those eyes which had been closed so they wouldn't recognize him were suddenly open as though they said, as though, wow, now we see. This is, didn't he say, and I'm speculating on this, didn't he say, This is my body, which is given for you. 
This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Didn't he say that before he died? It was necessary that he should die. His death wasn't the end of our hopes. His death was the making of them. And so they rushed back to Jerusalem and met up with the others. And of course, the others had seen Jesus risen again as well. Now, the amazing thing about the resurrection is that through the resurrection, God has done something. You see, through the resurrection, God has validated the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. God doesn't raise blasphemers or liars or frauds. God validated what Christ had done on the cross for us. By the resurrection, God has affirmed that Jesus has fulfilled his commitment to ransom humanity to God. By raising Jesus from the dead, God has officially declared Jesus to be the saviour of the world, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. God has officially declared it. But now then, because Jesus has risen, he is alive to administer the forgiveness of those who call upon him. To do it. He's alive to wash away the guilt of those who come trembling to him and saying, this is the man, the woman I have been. Have mercy on me. He is alive to wash away the guilt. Because he's risen, he is alive to infuse a new godly disposition into former sinners. A new birth. And because he's alive, he can bless us with his presence through the Spirit. Because he's alive. Because he's risen. And because he's risen, he can make good his promise of eternal life to us. But there's no resurrection without a death. And for Jesus to do all this now, it was necessary for him to suffer and so enter into his glory. He's in his glory now. He's raised into the heavenly place. And this is what John heard in his vision of glory. In Revelation chapter 5, this is what he heard. You were slain by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God, from every tribe and people and nation. We have a good few tribes and peoples and nations here this morning, I suspect. And then they said, they didn't say worthy as the one who was raised from the dead. They said, 
Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into this glory. <laughs>